Anybody else? Anybody else? For Ros, Ros, Rosalind. Rosalind? For, can you say what? Or? She young or old? How? She's about my age, old. Young. <laughs> Rosalind. She's a daily communicant, and she's actually our morning group um, emailer who keeps everyone together and remembers birthdays. She sends all the messages out, so Ros is really special. She's the one who does this. She does it, just, she just took it upon herself. Yeah. Yep. 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 She yep. gets a phone number, address, birthday, and everything, and just every month has cards for whoever birthday it is, and brings cakes and you know, yeah. Let's start. Yeah. Who done? Okay. Um, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of this day. We're here, um, alive and glad. Um, thank you especially for our church and for all in its wisdom that it does to help us move closer to you. It's like a heartbeat, we have these rhythms and right now we're in a tougher rhythm. We're asked to do penance, um, take seriously tithing, um, to give to the poor, um, release prisoners. And I just want to say a note in that. I hope everybody knows, or at least I believe, that Christ didn't just have on his mind prisoners in jail. Um, lots of us live in prisons. Part of our lives are a form of imprisonment. Um, there's all sorts of imprisonments. Um, help us um, to get free of them and to help others get free of them as well. Not just those in prison houses, but those um, prisons that we make of our lives, or even sometimes of others. Um, strengthen us in our Lenten um, commitments, our the discipline that we take on. Um, help us to take it seriously. Um, not make sad faces. Be glad. Um, the image for us, or at least is in my own mind, is Dante's Purgatory. Um, that this is a time for us to put away sins all year around, but more especially now. So strengthen us in our efforts, help us to grow in humility and um, to um, strengthen our efforts to bring you um, to each other, especially in our families, and your kingdom um, to make its presence felt in all that we do. Um, ask for a special blessing on that young boy, Dominic. Um, forgive, wash away whatever sins he has, young kid. Um, nobody will enter heaven. Um, grace perfects nature. Nobody will enter heaven without having all illnesses, all deformities taken away. Um, let him um, into the joy of your presence and um, I'm sure he will have prayers for his family. Um, hear their prayers. Um, let them know in their faith a gladness that their son's in good hands. Um, so genuinely be glad for him. Um, I'm sorry, Mary. Who, who's the rods? 
Um, watch over Roz, help her to heal, recover from her operation. Um, keep her safe, protect her. Um, let all those who care for her be at ease in their hearts, whatever happens. And be with um, Jen Pelletier in her efforts to recover from cancer. Um, and I ask for a special protection for all of us um, from this corona um, virus. Um, help us to be careful. Um, um, help us to take care. Um, we're not supposed to go around afraid, um, but we're asked also not to be cavalier or foolish. So um, there are dangers all around us, not just in the disease and all that's going on in our world. So during this Lenten period, um, help us to take care and um, to carry a joy in all of our struggles. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Father's Son, Holy Spirit. Um, okay, can you pull out the Shakespeare sonnet? I think the copy I gave you doesn't have um, a change. And I'm going to read um, from the same sonnet, but it'll, I think it's different from the one that you have. So don't be thrown off by it. I, I think it's a better translation. I, I think there was some question by scholars, on the part of scholars, about what Shakespeare was doing with this sonnet. So don't be confused when I get there. This is um, sonnet 146. Remember that Shakespeare was writing a whole sonnet cycle. He was copying Petrarch, an Italian sonnet, who, or I mean a, an Italian poet, who was following Dante, although very, very modern. With Petrarch, we're already into the modern world and away from Dante's Christian Middle Ages. We're in the Renaissance. Um, Petrarch wrote a, um, a sonnet cycle um, in honor of Laura, his beloved, this woman who's placed on this pedestal. And Shakespeare's partly parodying it. He, he's doing a sonnet cycle involving a threesome. Him, himself, the poet, and this dark-haired woman and a young boy. And he loves this young boy because he sees um, nothing but talent in this kid but he's concerned because of the attractions, the seductions of this woman. So there are all sorts of intrigues and poems that deal with, I mean, you can read them as isolated poems. Most people know them that way. But as a matter of fact, each isolated poem has a backstory. It belongs to this whole cycle. This one happens to be penitential. And I chose it just because it's Lent. And I thought it was appropriate for the, the spirit in which we enter into whatever disciplines we take on. So, Shakespeare's Sonnet 146. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, foiled by these rebel powers that the array, tripped up, the soul is tripped up by all the attention we give our bodies, you know, by paying too much attention to them or ignoring them, taking them for granted. Foiled by these rebel powers that the array, that array thee, the soul. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, painting thy outward wall so costly gay, why do you ignore the soul? Put it in a condition of dearth because you're paying so much attention to all these other things, the things of the world, wealth, homes, cars, things. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, painting thy outward wall so costly gay? Why so large cost, having so short a lease? Dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend 
when our life is so short, why are we giving so much attention to the body and not giving the attention to the soul that we should? Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss. body is supposed to serve the soul. Although um, it's very often the other way around. Um, then, um, is this thy body's end? Thy soul live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store. By terms divine, in selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's more, no more dying then. So by denying the body, um, we deny death its we, we deny death its place and grow in our spiritual life and so enter more fully into the eternal life of God. Um, so on a 146. Okay. Boy, there is no God. Hmm? I, I'll get it, Doc. I don't. Okay. Okay, back to work. We have got a lot to do tonight. Um, very quickly, let me just quickly review what we did when we started the Odyssey last time. Remember, the, the, in the epic, the, the poet begins <clears throat> by invoking the help of a goddess, Calliope. So right at the outset, we know that the, um, the story we're going to get is actually told by a divine person. In a sense, Homer's the instrument. He's the means by which that inspiration comes to him. God is telling the story through him. So, um, she makes possible a divine perspective on human things that poets um, wouldn't have without that help. They'd be confined to the world. So he turns to the goddess for help and says, sing, in this, remember, in the Iliad it was, sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son. Achilles was the son of Peleus. It's about his anger and the effect that it had on hundreds and hundreds of men. We've gone through that now. Um, this one opens on a very different hero. Um, sing, goddess, the man of many ways, whose um, many cities, you know, he experienced um, the different kinds of regimes that he's going to encounter that's gonna have a lot to do with his own growth. So we've got a new kind of hero. It begins with the invocation. You remember last time it talked about the fools who didn't get home. This poem's about Odysseus' struggle to get home. So one of its major themes is a homecoming, nostos, from which we get nostalgia, a longing for home, what was lost. He wants to get back. Um, it will be one of the major themes of Virgil when you get to Virgil. Virgil will want to go home. And the implied idea behind these poems is what Eliot, T.S. Eliot, puts so well. Um, in my beginning is my end. I won't be who I am until I go back to my beginnings um, to find out what my end is, to go there. So implied in this is, in my beginning is my end. He wants to go home. He's been away from home for 20 years. His son has grown up without him. His wife has been without him for 20 years. And what we realize in that, that important theme of the Odyssey, this homecoming, is um, a number of things. One is, remember, the, the Trojan War was fought because the marriage 
vows were violated. Helen and Paris took off from Menelaus's home and went to Troy, and the Trojan War was fought over that injustice. Um, when, we, when the Odyssey opens, it opens um, with all these suitors ravaging Odysseus's home. They're, they're using their power um, to force themselves on Penelope. So the home is in disorder. It's one of the effects in the war. With, when a man isn't around for 20 years, what happens to his family, to his home? Um, when, um, and what we learn is the home is often, ironically, it's often at least as treacherous as the violence we experienced in war in Iliad. When Agamemnon gets home, he's killed. He's murdered. Um, violent, um, the suitors are wrecking a violence on Odysseus's home. So in lots of instances, the home can be a treacherous place. Um, the introduction introduces us, the, sorry, the invocation introduces to a new kind of hero. Remember, Achilles was swift-footed, Achilles. He was a man of strength and power. And remember, he faced a choice of having a long um, life, um, comfortable life, or a short life with honor. He was a warrior. So the virtue that he shows us, that, that Homer is making us aware of in him, is the virtue of courage um, and honor. To, the whole point of the Iliad was to show us that there's this intrinsic goodness in man and most men trash it. It produced the war. All these men are killing each other for the booty they get for this mistaken sense or, or a flawed sense of honor, to be more accurate. What Achilles comes to is, is some awareness that um, he won't fulfill his destiny until he accepts his death and goes back into the war. And you remember that everything that happens at the beginning is reversed at the end. He gives away his booty, he honors men, and he goes back into the battle knowing he's gonna die. And He's unafraid, nobody can touch him. In the Odyssey, we've got a very different kind of hero. He's not giving himself to the conclusion, he, he fought in the war, he didn't, he didn't pull back in any way. But once Troy was um, destroyed, he wanted to go home to be reunited with his family. So the whole Odyssey is about a different kind of hero. It's about a man whose end is to be with his wife. So marriages are fundamental to this story. It's about the relationship between a man and a woman and home. So very different context. Because it is, it's a very different hero. He's a man of many ways. Um, the implied virtue behind that is prudence. What's gonna be interesting about this book is you'll see is that what, um, what, home, what um, Odysseus exemplifies as a man are the four natural virtues. I'll come back to this later, but justice, prudence, um, temperance and endurance. Justice, prudence, temperance, and endurance. Those are the four natural virtues that man is capable of realizing on his own, or at least barely with the help of the gods. These are, these are within his grasp. He can become a prudent man, a temperate man, a just man, uh, an enduring man. Those are the natural virtues, the four natural virtues. And he exemplifies every single one of them. One of the ones that stands out most in his case is prudence. Prudence means knowing what to do under what circumstances, when and how. Because circumstances will vary. What would have been appropriate in one set of circumstances will not be in another. How do we tell the difference? 
Only the prudent man knows. The, the man who lives his life rigidly will say, I did it here, I'm going to do it here. He doesn't see that a change of circumstances requires a change in what he's doing. Prudence means it's a virtue. It's a, it's a capacity that man has. He can do that. He can come to that. He can learn it, grow into it. So we're looking at a different kind of hero. In, in two ways, it seems to me, he anticipates Christ. Now, this is getting ahead of ourselves, but let me do this. I think he anticipates Christ because he is a man of many ways. He's the fulfillment of those virtues. He, he doesn't know the supernatural virtues. He does not know faith, hope, and charity. Those, those won't enter the world and become a part of us until Christ. But he does know the natural virtues. In taking on our nature, Christ lived those virtues. He was temperate. He was prudent. He endured. Um, I'm missing temperance, prudence, justice. He was just. Okay? But he brought to them those virtues, those natural virtues, a supernatural grace. So he gave a perfection to them that the natural man can't achieve. And also, and we're going to see this, this is going to become very, very important in the next couple of weeks. I'm just touching on it tonight. He's like Christ in the way he uses language. This might not make any sense right now, but it'll be, I think it'll be actually amazing when we get to it. Um, he's extraordinary in the way he uses language because in his use of language, um, Words give him a capacity to see things in a better way than other people do. So it makes it possible for him to do things that people who don't have that capacity can't do. Remember in the opening invocation, I touched on it last week, fools, they lost their homecoming because they were fools. The, word, the Greek word, remember I went over it, was napios. Fools, which means childlike, an inability to use language. I gave the example of, of, of somebody being locked up in a closet and coming out if they didn't have language. What would they, what would they be greeted by? I mean, how would they deal with their world? We take language for granted. The words. We take words for granted. Um, and yet words give us a capacity to do things in our relations with each other and um, in dealing with whatever circumstances we face. It gives us a capacity to do things with them that we wouldn't have if we didn't have words. Okay. So what Odysseus does with language, the way he uses the word, anticipates Christ, who is the word. Think about the way Christ, what Christ did with words, the teaching that he did. The word was <laughs> inherent in him. He was the word. Um, one of the most important qualities of this whole book running throughout is people's ends are going to be determined largely by how open they are to the gods. Look at the suitors and ask yourself, are they open to what the gods say to them? When we get to the Cyclops, does he hear the gods? The people who typically don't hear the gods are, um, are the ones who set up some form of destruction. They will, their actions will lead to their own downfall. So what happens to a person so often depends on how open he is to the gods, his openness to a divine order. Um, and just to touch on the Telemach, I remember that I just briefly touch on some of the things. Remember at the opening of the, the epic, the gods are meeting and talking about the way the, that human beings blame the gods. And they gave the example of uh, Thyestes and Clytemnestra who killed Agamemnon. 
Um, the gods told him not to do what he did, but he ignored them and he got killed. Orestes, who was Agamemnon's son, killed him and his mother. I mean, that's, that's the story of the um, Aeschylus' trilogy, the, the great Greek dramatist Aeschylus. And one of the problems that Telemachus, Telemachus faces is, will he have the courage to do hard things when he faces them? Will he, will he ever muster the courage to get rid of the suitors? Because he's, I mean, he's a kid. He's surrounded by 100 men you know, whose force he can't even begin to deal with. He's too young. But will he grow into manhood and will he eventually deal with the disorders in his own home? Um, the gods send Hermes to um, set Odysseus free because he's been on Calypso's island for eight years and sends Athena to Ithaca where Ithaca will help Telemachus deal with this problem. And you know that she, um, she takes the form of Mentes who will say, your father's okay. Um, and he, he will deal with the suitors, he will call an assembly and confront them. And with Athena's help, in this case, taking the form of um, mentor, um, he goes to Nestor, to Pylos. And from Pylos, he'll go to Sparta. So he'll meet Nestor and Menelaus. He'll visit two families, and we're gonna see two forms of marriages. So marriage, once again, is, is absolutely at the center of this book what a man and woman do in their marriage, how they relate. Um, just a couple of things that we touched on last week. Remember that um, the, the Femius, who's a bard, like, like Homer, Femius is a bard. He sings the tales. He's singing of the Trojan War, and Penelope is so saddened by it that she tells Femius to stop. And Telemachus says, no, let him sing on. You know, the, people, the men need to hear that song. It's one of the first steps that he takes that shows he's on the threshold of manhood. He's not rude to his mother, he's not insulting, but he is saying, let the man sing. Phamios is the first image of a, of a bard, which is what Homer is, okay? We're gonna see two bards, Phamios here at Ithaca, and when Odysseus gets to the Phaeacian island, he's gonna meet another bard, another poet, Demodocus, who's gonna sing stories then. So in one sense, this is really interesting. Homer is aware of himself and shows that self-awareness, what poets do, by writing bards into the story. Femios here, and then Demodocus later. So um, Femios sings, the, and you know that the suitors are doing all they can to get drunk and eat and answer their belly, but they don't, they're unmannered, they're unruly, they're overbearing. Um, they're committing a violence against a home because there's nobody there to um, tell them no. Um, remember when the suitors respond to Telemachus when he speaks out against them. The first one to speak out against him was Antinous. We talked about that. We, we know that Homer orders everything. The fact that Antinous is the first one to speak indicates he's the leader. Antinous, anti, nous, nomos. Anti means against. Nomos means law in Greek, okay? Anti-nous, anti-nomos, anti-law. He speaks, and then his, the second in command is Eurymachus. 
Eurymachos in Greece means Uri is, is the prefix meaning um, broadly, widely. Makos means war. So Antinous is unlawful and um, Eurymachos is instinctively warlike. Both of these men are men who set themselves against the law. And they're, they're, they're the ones who head up the disorders. Okay? They image everything that's violent about these men. So that's just a review, a very quick review of, of what we touched on in the opening. Now I'm going out on a limb. I'm going out on a limb. Um, I think you know how my reservations about taking on too catechetical a character in what I'm doing here. I don't know why I should say that because everything we're doing is catechetical, but as a teacher, I did everything in my classes to do. I didn't want to let something other than the text direct my reading. So the point of everything I did was to be guided by that text, whatever it was, and in, the, in its tradition. So I, I didn't want political views, I didn't want religious views to color what I did because I've, I've seen people holding political views and I've seen people holding religious views distort text. I just didn't want to do that. So I'm admitting up front here, I'm going to, I'm going to take on a catechetical, something of a quasi-catechetical role for a second, okay? So just know that. I want to deal with three things that I believe go directly to this book but I'm not sure that you could pull them out from the text itself. I think you can, but it takes a real close reading. So let me touch on them a little bit more abstractly and outside of the text, if I can, for a minute. Um, Odysseus is called Long-Suffering Odysseus. That's his title. He's been away from home for 20 years. He was at war, suffering daily for 10 years. He was on a journey and wanderings. He got thrown off because of stupid things his men did that threw him off course just when he was going to land at home and is sent off into sea. Now, at one level, we're meant to take that literally. He goes out to sea. He has to, he's had all these encounters with these strange creatures. But in one sense, there's an allegoric or, or a symbolic meaning to everything that happens. He goes out to sea. I'm not going to, I'm going to raise a couple of questions. I'm not going to answer them right now, but we have to ask this serious question. What is the sea? And I'm saying that really serious. We'll get a glimpse of it here tonight when we look at the Menelaus um, section. What is the sea? The sea is not man's home. It's not his home. Our home is on land. Whenever we encounter works of fiction dealing with sea, the sea is generally an image of something more. Very often it's an image of grace. It's something that can't be controlled. It's overpowering. It's not man's home. Strange things happen there. When Odysseus is at sea, Athena, who watches over him the whole time, Athena never visits him. She's the goddess of reason, of wisdom. So keep that in mind, something strange. So it's not just literally at sea. We're meant to understand something more is going on. We have to look at it closely. That's going to affect his marriage. Because he's going to come home after his sea voyages and bring something to his marriage that Nestor and Menelaus do not bring to theirs. So what is that? That's a later question. We'll 
next week we'll, we'll take up the sea journey. But He's called long-suffering Odysseus, away at war for 10 years, away on his journey for 10, suffering the entire time. The word suffer, this is really important. The word suffer means to carry up from beneath, to carry up from, um, from beneath. Fede means um, to bear up, to stain, or endure something from below. It also means fertile. So Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. Um, we're meant to understand that that's not a negative thing the way it would be for moderns because you know that our world, I hope, our world is utopian in the sense that we believe we're going to be happier if we don't suffer. Now just for a moment, set that against Christianity, our faith, because we know at the center of our faith is a cross. Put those two things against each other. Our world wants to do everything it can to take suffering out of the picture, to make our lives comfortable, secure. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. He suffers. Most people think of suffering in completely negative terms. It's really clear that Homer shows us that there's something positive to it. Okay? Sefede, to carry up from underneath. Fede, to carry, to bear. It also means fertile. So it means it can produce something. All the ancient poets said wisdom came from suffering. That a man who didn't suffer was a man who was living too cavalierly. We all know that. I mean, I, or I hope we do. I mean, let me speak for myself here, I better be careful. <laughs> when I look back at my younger years, all I, all I, I mean, I'm sort of appalled at how stupid I was and probably am in lots of ways. But I think most of us look back on our youth and think, God, how stupid, you know, free from suffering. And then you, you have kids, you marry. Um, Suzanne has to put up with me. <laughs> Are you okay? Um, we have to put up with each other. We have to learn to get past whatever's in the way of loving. That always involves us in the suffering because it means learning to put ourselves away. This is what love is. Love means putting ourselves, getting our egos out of the way in order to do a good for another. Now, I don't want to romanticize that because doing good for, let's say the good, the person who, who's good you're looking out for is an alcoholic. I mean, let's get a, um, somehow you've got to deal with that in a way that's good and still just to help that person get out of his addiction. So I don't want to romanticize this. Love means looking to the good of another, and that's not always easy. Um, this is one, what one um, professor at the Sorbonne in Paris said about suffering. I, think, I, I, I don't know of anybody who's put it better. He says, we are told that in pain and suffering, we pass to a lesser degree of perfection. It's inevitable that this passage should affect our interior activity. You know that if we break a leg, and I, I'm trusting everybody, you know that breaking a leg is an awful experience. But breaking a leg is nothing next to a, a betrayal, a personal betrayal. There's a difference between spiritual pain, or physical pain and spiritual anguish. When somebody betrays us, it touches something spiritual in our character. That's a deeper form of suffering. I think most of you would agree. So he's talking about pain and going through um, 
to a lesser degree of perfection. It's inevitable that this passage should affect our interior activity. We have an awareness of what we have just lost. We know that at one point we had something and now no longer have it. But the very consciousness of this loss introduces in us, as has always been held, a growth in consciousness which is itself not a loss. Consequently, there is born in us a new being, a very different, very different from the being we were before we began to suffer. My spontaneity is curbed, it's true, but my reflection and my will come into play to compensate for what has been taken away from me. My activity, which has been up to this point instinctive, has now become spiritual. The use that I make of it will depend upon me alone. It will be up to me to decide whether or not this loss can be converted into a gain. That is, whether we learn from our mistakes and become better. If what I'm claiming earlier that we are capable of natural virtue, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, it means even if we suffer, our consciousness changes. It's like we're reborn and see things more deeply than we did before. Otherwise, what's the difference between us when we're 60 and the way we were when we were 14? So there, there can be no growth in consciousness that doesn't come through some suffering. Learning to give up something of what we've held on to um, and becoming a person, seeing things more deeply, increasing our capacity to feel for another. Okay? So hold on to that, the importance of suffering for Odysseus. He is long-suffering. When he goes on his voyage, he's, he's not going to be without... He's never going to be in a situation in which he's free of suffering, ever. He's going to suffer every experience. He's got to learn something from every one of them before he gets home. And when he gets home, he's going to have to face a hundred suitors. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, so first, this aspect of suffering that's so important to the, to the epic. The second thing I want to touch on here is this notion of wholeness. And this is where I'm going to, it's going to be a stretch back to the epic, but bear with me for a second. Um, it seems to me what I'm talking about is implied in the Odyssey. It won't become clear until Christianity. So let me get away with this if you'll let me get away with something here for a second. This is our understanding of the Trinity. This is St. Thomas on the Trinity. In the Trinity, there's three persons, right? Distinct, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know that this, we believe the Son came down and took on a human form and did what he did, eventually was crucified and came back to life. That's our image, that's our hope, that any suffering we enter into will take us closer to him. We enter into a cross with him. But in the, in, in the eternal state, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they existed in a condition that's radically different from our own. We have bodies. In our material world, one is always greater than two, right? And five is more than three. Yes? Because we live in a material world. If we have five, you take away four, there's one left, okay? In the Trinity, that's not so. In the Trinity, God as one person is not greater or less than the other two. And any, any of the two of them is not, are not greater, any of the two is not greater than one of them. They are all co-sharers in a whole. 
completely. The Father, in, in eternity now, remember, we're in a metaphysical world, not a physical world. In eternity, there's one God, not three. That's why it's false for people who accuse us of a polytheism like the Greeks. We believe in one God. Oh, sorry. We believe in one God. There's one essence, one being, yeah? God. And each person shares in it fully. Okay? So in the Trinity, one is not less than two. And two is not greater than one. That's a metaphysical concept. We've entered a different realm. If we ever get to Dante together, it'll become a little bit clearer. Here's the point I want to make. In the Trinity, there is nothing but love between the persons. They are one with each other, right? It cannot be any other way. Can you imagine in the Trinity, the Son being at odds with his Father? Or the Holy Spirit revolting? Or They are one. They share an essence. So if we're made in the image of God, if we're made in the image of God, that means our nature is Trinitarian. We were meant to be whole with each other. We were created to love and be loved. The church uses the, the, the phrase one flesh. How can you be one flesh? Because we know in our world, bodies can't occupy the same space, right? Get in a crowded airport, <laughs> airport get in a seat and you know, people are gonna push for, um, bodies can't occupy the same space. I hope everybody's clear here, right? But, and yet we're called to be one flesh. Is there anything in the modern world that will help us do that? Because there's no way, in our, according to our faith, that can be done without the help of the Spirit, who was the Spirit of Christ. He's bringing Christ to us, to learn to love one another, to become one with each other. Is everybody following? If we take that seriously in marriage, it means all marriages will be an adventure, and very often painful, Because how can two people become one unless one person allows the other person into the state of his own sins to help take them on and the risk of taking on the sins of another? We live in a world that says, I want to have things my way. I'm not going to be happy unless I get this. And then we'll be happy. The church is calling us to be one. And that means risking, opening, allowing another one in to an awareness to carry our own sins and for us to enter into their sins and carry them as well, to bear them. And the presumption I'm assuming is we're, if we're called a virtue is to help each other become better, to become more virtuous. How easy is that? The Odyssey is making it clear it, 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 it entails nothing but suffering. So the Odyssey is going to stand out as an anti-romantic book. This is not going to romanticize anything. This is about a man struggling with everything in his world because um, he, in order for him to fulfill his destiny at home, he's going to have to learn to deal with all these problems at sea. So two things here. One, suffering has a positive element. It's a force for good. Or it can be. And I hope you all know that I'm not supporting violence or inflicting suffering. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there, there is, I'm gonna to come to this a little bit later. Um, we believe that our God is good, that he's doing everything he can 
That's our faith. He's doing everything he can to bring good out of the stupid things we do to help us become better. Boethius, if we ever get there, Boethius is going to say, there is no bad fortune. There is no bad fortune. Because our God is a good God. He's doing everything he can to bring good out of evil. Um, So, hold on to those two notions. Suffering and this notion of wholeness. Um, That humans were created to love and be loved. And to be one with each other. And... Um, hold that on your mind while we move through the two marriages at the beginning and towards the end and we look at Odysseus's marriage. So in a marriage, a man and a woman are made in God's image. Homer didn't know this, but I, I think his intuitions on it were sort of amazing. Um, um, you can't change, nothing can change our characters. Karen's different from Mary. Yeah, I'm different from Mary, Suzanne. Suzanne's different from me. Each one of us has a different person. We cannot change our character. We, we're, God gave each... Here, there's a fundamental difference between an individual and a person. You can have an individual flower, individual oak tree, yeah? But none of those trees have personhood the way we understand person. To be a person means to be able to say, I to step outside of ourselves and look at an eye and look at others and enter into that I-ness of others. That's peculiar to human beings. We have personhood. Each one of us was given a different character. We can't change it, but we can make it better. Whoever, Whoever God has made each one of us to be, we can become that person. fully perfected in our nature, in a human sense. We believe we can't do it without God's help to enter into supernatural grace, but just in a natural order, what Homer's dealing with is the possibility of virtue in a world, that, that human beings can attain a virtue, they can become better, there's something in them that makes that possible. Okay? Now, to, to, to help make this clear, if it's not clear, set our Catholic belief against a Protestant or a scientific belief. The scientific world believes we're products of forces over which we have no control. We don't have free will, and the natural end of our life is self-preservation. We do everything. We would kill a person before we would die for another person because we want to self-preservation to preserve ourselves. So we're in a light lifeboat and somebody has to get out, we'll push somebody else out of the boat before we will give up our, you know... The Protestant world be, believes that we're all corrupted, depraved, that the effects of the fall were complete. We've gone over this before. They believe that we're corrupted. So there's no relation between that Protestant world and what's going on in the Iliad or the Odyssey, or the Aeneid, finally, or even the Divine Comedy when we get there. They believe that we're corrupted, our nature is corrupted, incapable of achieving a virtue, a justice, prudence, temperance. That the only, or at least for the fundamentalists, the only thing that will help us is the grace of God. So they will say, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's it. The Catholic believes that we're not corrupted. We are not depraved. We're not the product of blind forces. We are made in the image of God. Our fall wounded us, but we're still capable of an intrinsic virtue. With help, we can become better people. With grace, we can be like Christ.
So what Homer's showing us, he's giving us a view of what is possible between a man and a woman and the cost of it. He's not going to romanticize marriage. He will not do that. Um, but that's our focus, okay? So I just want to put out this notion of the importance of suffering for this epic, um, the, the importance of understanding wholeness, what it means, and, um, and um, the importance of marriage in this, okay? Just hold on to what I said about wholeness because it's, it's, a, it's a tricky notion. It's, it's one that escapes most of us. But we believe at the center of our faith, that's why I think pre-Cana things are taken so seriously. And I don't think they're done always very well. Um, um, but at the center of our faith is this belief that we can become one with each other. The cost of that is often hard, terrible, because to do that means renouncing ourselves, denying ourselves, to, to love another person for the good of that other person, whatever that asks. That's the image that we have from Christ. And um, what I'm arguing tonight is that in some ways, Homer and Virgil and you know, these poets reading will actually give us more support for that than lots of current modern ideas. Let me stop here before I want to I want to go to the I want to go to the text now but just any questions or thoughts on these are sort of these large notions that you know what I do and trying to give a background and some important things to think about when we read any questions or must be doing something wrong here No. Mary, go. <laughs> Don't put this on me. Don't put this on me. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know, that's so abstract, it's hard to... Well, like, uh, what I'm trying to do, I want to be careful right now because the circumstances for each one of us can differ. You know, what I want to do is, is throw out some notions that, that might help us enter into this world to see how extraordinary it is. Remember, remember I, Flannery O'Connor, a Catholic writer, wrote a story called um, Heart of the Park. It's part of an, a longer novel of who's actually in, and she, she introduces this, this character who feels like something's gonna happen and we follow him moving th through this park. It's, it's like going back to a Eden and the fall. And he follows this person who takes him into a museum and he, he's compelled it's as if something's gonna happen and he can't stop what he's doing. He's gotta find out what, something about some secret mystery that he feels is present that he can't get a hold of. He follows this guy into a museum and the guy goes over to a, a glass cage and he looks at it as if suddenly he has a revelation about something. We don't know quite what it is. 
And when the, the guy, Moses, gets there to see what the guy's looking at, he looks inside the cage, what he sees is a shrunken pygmy. And that's an image for Flannery O'Connor of modern man. That we have so shrunken a sense of our nature. Remember I asked this question weeks ago, are our beginnings high or low? You know, in the modern mind they're low, we're product of forces and we have no free will and God doesn't exist. Um, if you set the modern view against a pre-Christian view, a pagan view, we've looked at the Iliad, we're looking at the Odyssey, we'll see that there's some nobility in, in man that we've lost a sense of in our world. We saw it in Achilles, he had to accept his death. I mean, the cost of it, Homer's no romantic. The cost of doing what he did was death. He had to accept his death, and so it wasn't like this was an easy thing. And we're gonna find that what happens between Odysseus and Penelope, I think we have to wait to get there, but it's pretty amazing. But the cost of it is great. I mean, he has to learn all these things, you know, before he gets home. So all I'm really trying to suggest is be aware of other things when you read this, um, be because it's a different world. It's a mythic, pre-Christian, non-scientific world. So it's very different from our own. And one of my concerns was see, to be, can, can we learn something about ourselves? I mean, you know that from my Iliad, I mean, or even from Shakespeare, when we did Shakespeare, that there's so much for us to learn from these people about our human nature and God, you know, these things. Remember the, the, the rubric, the subtitle of the course is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. So just hold on to these notions. Let's, let's go to the text, okay? Um, quickly on page 39. This is book two about um, um, line 15 or so. Remember that Athena encouraged Telemachus to call an assembly and to confront the suitors. So he's doing it. This is this young kid. He's terrified by these hundred men who overpower him. He feels his life is collapsing. I, 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 this is so amazing to me. It's hard for me to imagine most young men reaching the age of 1920 without feeling overwhelmed by it. Even if they're cocky. I think underneath their cockiness, there are fears. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a face we put on um, to show we're, we, don't have, we don't have to worry about these things. But it's hard, I think, for most of us to grow up and not feel that we live in a chaotic world. Violence is all around us. Bad things are happening. That's the situation Telemachus is in. Um, page 39, line 15. He sat in his father's seat and the elders made way before him. The first now to speak to them was the hero Aegyptios, who was bent over with age and had seen things beyond number. His own dear son, Antiphus, the spearman, had gone off with godlike Odysseus to Ilion, land of the good horses in the hollow ships, and now the wild Cyclops had killed him. We will find out, so this is this, this older man's son, we will find out when we get to the cave with the Cyclops, this is one of the men that the Cyclops ate. So we're to know that this father has lost his son. He's been one of the ones who hasn't returned and he carries this grief. He had three other sons, one of them, Euronymus, 
went with the suitors, the other two kept the estates of their fathers. Even so, he could not forget it, the lost son. He grieved, mourned for him, and was in tears for him now that he stood forth and addressed them. This is one of the most important themes of the beginning. We're going to find over and over again that none of these people in these opening sections can let go of the past. Their memories are full of wounds. How could it not be? Their families were torn up. The war went on for 10 years. Some of the people have still not returned. They're all carrying losses and they're grieving over them. That's a given. Hear me now, men of Ithaca, and the word I give you, never has there been an assembly of us or any session since great Odysseus went away in the hollow. This is a startling change. It hasn't happened in 20 years. Now who's gathered us? Go down. Um, um, the, an older man gives the scepter to Telemachus and then he speaks. He says, it is I who assemble the people. To me, this grief comes closest. Not that I heard some message about the return of the army, which having heard it first, I could now explain to you. It's not that. Not have I some other public matter to set forth and argue, but my own need, the evil that has befallen my household. There are two evils. I've lost a noble father, and the other is um, a greater evil, one which presently will break out the whole house and destroy all my livelihood. That is, the suitors are overwhelming the home. For my mother, against her will, is beset by suitors, own sons to the men who are the greatest hereabouts. Now, underscore that. These sons belong to families who are well off. And it shows they've all been spoiled. These sons, these young men come from good families and they're tearing Odysseus. That is, they so want Penelope and they so, they so want the claim to be the king of Ithaca to take hold of that power. So these men are driven by her beauty and by their desire for power. Um, he goes on, he says, all their days they come and loiter in our house and sacrifice our oxen and our sheep and our fat goats and make a holiday feast of it and drink the bright wine recklessly. Most of our substance is wasted. We have no man here such as Odysseus was to drive this curse from the household. Once again, we're back in the Iliad. What do you do in the presence of male power, male force? Men who increase their power by their numbers. Who's going to stop them? Telemachus can't. The top of the next page. No longer are the things endurable that have been done and beyond all decency. My house has been destroyed. Um, go down, unless my noble father at some time in anger did evil to the strong grieved Achaeans for which anger for which angry with me in revenge, you do me evil in setting these on me. He's wondering if his father did something wrong for him to deserve this burden. He's confused, he doesn't know how to explain um, the awful situation he's in. Antino speaks up, remember, antinous, anti-nomos, anti-law. High-spoken, intemperate Telemachus, what accusations you have made to our shame trying to turn opinions against us. He says the blame is with Penelope because you know she used that ruse. She said she would marry one of the suitors when she finished weaving this thing. She would spend the whole day weaving and then at night she would undo it. So it kept the um, suitors preoccupied for years and off balance. It, hold on to this. We learned that it was one of the maidservants who betrayed her. It's going to become really important later because when Odysseus comes home, he's not going to have to just deal with the men. He's going to have to deal with all the women who are disloyal. Um, 
So he blames Penelope, um, top of page 44, about line 180. Then in turn, Eurymachus, remember, much war, instinctively warlike. Then in turn, Eurymachus, son of Polybos, answered, Old sir, better go home and prophesy to your children, for fear they may suffer some evil to come. And these things I can give a much better interpretation than you can. Many are the birds who under the sun's rays wander the sky. Not all of them mean anything. Odysseus is dead. Halus Thurses, a prophet who's just read the bird sign, has said one bird turns on the other. And he reminds everybody that 20 years ago, he, he made a prophecy then, before the men went to war, that 20 years later, Odysseus would return. Now it's 20 years later. So he's prophesizing that Odysseus' return is imminent. And Eurymachus' response is, um, I can prophesy, prophesy better than you. Um, I can give much better interpretation. Many of the birds who enter the sun rays wander the sky. So think about this, because we, we know from everything that goes on, Eurymachus does not believe in the gods. He doesn't pay any attention to them. This is a blasphemous statement. What he's doing is mocking the gods and say, I can do this better than you. And, he had, and that's, he's not serious about this. He can't read the gods. He, 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 he ignores them. All of the suitors do. Um, hold on. Um, Eurymus goes on, Eurymachus says, let him urge his mother to go back to her fathers and they shall appoint the marriage and arrange for the wedding presents in great amount as ought to go with the beloved daughter. Um, for I think the sons of the Achaeans will not give over their hard course, harsh courtship. For in any case, we fear no one and surely not Telemachus. For all he is so eloquent, nor do we care for any prophecy which you old sir may tell us which will not happen. Um, Telemachus gets angry with him, 2.10, says, I no longer entreat you in these matters nor speak about them since by now the gods know about this. What the, one of the major characteristics of the suitors is their, their blasphemous spirit. They deny the gods, they won't heed them. They depend on their own physical strength to overcome, to get what they want. Um, Athena comes down and takes on the form of mentor and tells Adis, or Telemachus to set out in search of his father and Telemachus tells Eurymach, um, or uh, Ericlia, Ericlia the, the nurse, Penelope's nurse, to supply the ships and he sets off, okay? Now go on over to 51. Um, so, What's happening at this point represents a serious liminal threshold moment. Telemachus is beginning to take responsibility for the evil in the world. He's not just passively suffering it. He's trying to do something. And, and we know that it's partly under the inspiration of Athena, who's come to him in the form of Mentes and then Mentor to help him. Um, going over to... Um, let's see. Um, 
when um, Telemachus and Mentor approach Nestor's home, Homer describes it this way, about line 35. This is page 52, um, book 3, line 35 or so. First, Pisistratus, son of Nestor, came close up to them and took them both by the hands and seated them at the feasting on the rugs. They're, they're, this is really important. Mentor and Telemachus arrive when Pisistratus, Nestor's son, is performing a ritual service to the gods. In this case, it's Poseidon. And he turns to um, Telemachus and says, my guest, make your prayer now to the Lord Poseidon, for his is the festival you've come to on your arrival. So the first thing he greets is men involved in a religious ritual, okay? Um, he doesn't know it, that mentor is Athena at the bottom of page 52, and she offers a prayer. She spoke in prayer, but herself was bringing all of it to completion. She's actually present there while they're praying to Poseidon. Um, Nestor asks why they're there, and Telemachus tells him that he's come to learn about his father, and his questions um, evoke a real sorrow in Nestor because he was involved in the war, and Odysseus is one of his closest friends. Page 54 at the top, about line 105. In turn, Nestor the Geranian horseman answered him, dear friend, since you remind me of sorrows which in that country we endured, we sons of the Achaeans, valiant forever, or we all endured in our ships on the misty face of the water, cruising after plunder wherever Achilles led us. Or we all endured about the great city of the Lord Priam, fighting, and all who were our best were killed in that place. Aias dead, Achilles there lies, Patroclus, one who was like the gods, Antilochus surprisingly swift to run and a fighter. Antilochus is his son. Do you remember who he was? I made a point of underscoring it when we did it, but I don't think I got it until several readings in, but who is Antilochus? Yeah, which one? Yep. Remember there was that big quarrel. It was such, it was a turning point because remember a quarrel broke out. He did, well, that's what Menelaus said. What he, what he did was follow his father's instruction. He was artful, that's what his father, when you take that turn. Because it's the, important of art, it's the importance of art over physical strength, that he learned something, he actually beat him out. But we saw that man, he was noble, he was magnanimous, he gave the horse up when, um, when Menelaus was offended. I mean, it was an important scene in the Iliad. And here, we learn he's dead. So one of these characters that was very much alive to us in the Iliad is gone. And this is only one of numbers of you know, men who didn't get home. So recalling that brings Nestor to tears. Um, um, and he talks about the arguments that the Greeks had in going home. Menelaus, at the top of 3055, at this time Menelaus was urging all the Achaeans to go home. Agamemnon said, go back and give hecatoms, that is make sacrifices to appease the gods in case there were any angers because of the war. And um, half of them go out to sea, and Odysseus turns back, um, line 160. We were straining homeward, but Zeus, hard-hearted, was not yet devising homecoming for us, but again inspired yet another quarrel 
Then some men who followed the Lord Odysseus, the wise and resourceful, turned about and boarding once more their um, oar-swept vessels, went back bringing comfort to Atreus' son Agamemnon. They went back with their king. Um, this is really important. The, the, the war was a matter of a quarrel between Menelaus and Paris, right? The Greeks defeated them. And now that the war is over, what are the Greeks doing? Quarreling. They can't agree on things. Um, constantly divided, and lots of the men um, will suffer. They won't get home. Um, Nestor goes on to describe um, the killing of um, Agamemnon when he gets home. And then Telemachus says, this is page 56 in the bottom, O Nestor, son of Neleus, great glory of the Achaeans, it's all too true that he took revenge. So the Achaeans will carry his glory far and wide, a theme for singers to come. If only the gods would give me such strength as he has to take revenge on the suitors for their overbearing oppression. They force their way upon me and recklessly plot against me. No, the gods have spun out no such strand of prosperity for me and my father. Now we must even have to endure it. What's the great irony of that passage? It's just flooring. Irony. What's the irony of that passage? They're lamenting all the sorrows the men have suffered in war, after the war, on the way home. He, um, Telemachus has told Nestor about the suitors and what they're doing. And, he's, and um, Nestor says about line 200, so you too, dear friend, for I see you are tall and splendid. Be brave too, so that the men unborn may speak well of you. Um, He's sort of laughing and saying, let, let the suitors beware. And then Telemus says, what you say can't happen. If only the gods would give me such strength as he has. Um, remember, Orestes took Agistos' life. If only they would give me his strength to take revenge on the suitors for their overbearing oppression. They force their way upon me and recklessly plot against me. No, the gods have spun out no such strand of prosperity for me and my mother. Now we must even have to endure it. What's the irony? Who's right next to him? Athena. Does he see it? This is extraordinary. I mean, I, I wish we had read Boethius. We, but you know, Boethius' argument, it's a philosophic argument that he makes. He, the, the conclusion he'll come to is there's no bad fortune. Here, Athena's been helping him all along. <laughs> Can he see it? How, or let me put it different. How strong is his faith? He's not going to be reckless. He's not going to go in there and try to take the suitors on. That'd be stupid. But the irony here is that she's next to him and helping him in ways he can't see. That should be at the center of our faith, whatever's going on in our life. How often do hardships leave us crushed? Let me put the question differently. Why does she not make herself visible at that moment and say, stop being stupid and immature? I'm right here helping you. It's not free. She expects something. What? She expects a man. She expects endurance. She expects to be a hero. Yeah. What would she do if she came out and said, I'm here? What would, Telem what would, Tele what would happen to Telemachus if she did that? Huh? I think he'd just let her take care of it. Yeah. Instead of being in himself. Right. I mean, 
she's the goddess of wisdom, so presumably there's some wisdom to what she's doing. I think she, I mean, she wants him to grow up. If she does it all for him, he, he'll, he'll, he'll say, let the gods do it. Uh, flies off, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's, yeah, it's sort of veiled, but yes, yeah, she does. We were doing, we're doing the grand, we're doing um, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov in St. Francis, and in the middle of that, one of the brothers, Ivan, deals with the three temptations of Christ in the desert. And the question that I put to everybody was, what would have happened if Christ had given in to one, each one of those temptations? It's really important to look at that, because I don't, everything he does is for us. So we can learn a lot about ourselves if we look at those temptations and ask, what was the temptation? What would have happened if he'd given into it? What would it have meant for us? Anyway, the last one you remember is Christ, or the devil, Satan takes him to the temple and says, throw yourself off. Um, you're, you're, if you're God, the angels will minister you. And then Christ says, um, you, don't, you don't tempt your God. Doc, could you offer your description of, um, of the irony of that? What would happen if you'd given in? The one you gave? Yeah. I'm sure you guys have all heard it. Um, there's a guy being told to get out because Katrina's coming and he needs to evacuate. Um, and the police come and say, you're not safe here. Come on, we'll take you out of here. And he says, no, I'm not going. God will take care of me. They, they send a boat. And then the water comes up and they send a boat. Hmm. And he says, no, I'm not getting in the boat. God has said he will take care of him. And then the water forces him up on the roof of his house. And he said, no, I'm not getting in the helicopter. God will take care of him. And when he drowns, he goes to God and says, or St. Peter or whoever. He said you were going to take care of him. And God looks at him and said, is it the police? I said, a boat? I said, a helicopter? <laughs> That's so funny. God, anyway, um, I, I think the implication here is that she's trying to do all that she can to help him without undermining him, with, in, a, in a way to help him become better himself. Because if she were to do it all, it would be a form of enabling. It would just make it easier for him to turn to her. Go back to the next page and look at Nestor's response. 57, about line 220. If only great Athena would deign, would condescend to love you as in those days she used to take care of glorious Odysseus in the Trojan country where we Achaeans suffered miseries. For I never saw the gods showing such open affection as Pallas Athena, the way she stood beside him openly. If she would deign to love you as she did him and care for you in her inner, in her heart, and some of those people might well forget about marrying. <laughs> the irony of that. Once again, Telemachus. Hold, sir, I think that what you have said will not be accomplished. What you mean is too big. It bewilders me. That which I hoped for could never happen for me, not even if the gods so willed it. Um, and Athena speaks to him and says, what word came out of you? And, and a minute later, she will fly off as a bird, and Nestor will be over 
um, overwhelmed in wonder at, at watching it and realizing that it was, um, or it was probably Athena. Um, going over to page 62, um, the, men are, the men are taken care of, um, or, um, or here, sorry, she did, let me get to this first. They're, they're fed and the preparations for the meal are being done on, at the bottom of page 62. And when all had made prayer and flung down the scattering barley, um, Thrasymedes, the high-hearted son of Nestor standing close up struck and the ax chopped its way through the tendons of the neck and unstrung the strength of the cow. And now the daughters and daughter-in-law of Nestor and his grave wife Eurydice, the eldest of the daughters of um, Clymenos raised the outcry they lifted the cow, held it fast, it was slaughtered, and then they eat it. Um, um, and shortly after that, um, the next morning, Nestor, I mean, Telemachus and Pisistrata, Nestor's son, will leave for Sparta. Now, let me just stop for a second. Um, what do we learn about a marriage from Telemachus's visit to Pylos, to Nestor's? Maybe I should set this against Menelaus, but let's stop for a second. There are a lot of clues there. They do say that she's grave. So it's a serious arrangement. Say? It's rather a serious arrangement. She's grave, they say. You're ready What do you mean by serious arrangement? Sorry. Well, there's not the lighthearted give and take and loving. Oh. Marriage life. We'll see you later. Bob, did you? Go ahead. Remember, this is Homer describing her, I think. Yeah. Do you, do anybody have a recollection of Nestor in the Iliad? Can you remember? He was like a sort of caretaker to Achilles because he, was, he had traveled a distant land and was taken in by his family because he had been driven out of his own home unfairly. And so he was taken into the house of Peleus and was sort of a, a mentor to Achilles. That was Phoenix. Oh, it's Phoenix. Yeah. Nestor is the one who did the catalog of the ships at the beginning. Um, remember when they had the quarrel and Achilles had left and Nestor says, the problem is you haven't organized things. Put them into divisions and we'll find out who's not working. That's the first thing to know about it. He had this long-winded description of what to do, organize everybody and we'll find out who's, I mean, it's a very practical solution. But you can't find a passage in the Iliad in which Nestor speaks where he doesn't go on and on and on about his accomplishments in the past. He does nothing but talk about his glories. Now the war is over, and they spent most of the time talking about losses in the war. Where is his wife in all of that? Absent. Absent. Do we hear her voice? Does she have a voice? I keep, I keep going back to the Shakespeare plays. That I, I mean, it was a shock to me, you know that. I wasn't expecting that. And then after we put them all down, I took a look at all the men and I was embarrassed. Um, Nestor's, Nestor's a man who lives under that masculine heroic code. All the things. Um, so what's on, we, in him we've got an image of the heroic code verbally, looking back. He did that in the Iliad. And by the way, it's, it's not to take away from his heroism. He was, a, he was a good soldier, a good battler. He fought in a war. But here we are visiting his home, and there's no place for anything ongoing in the present that involves his wife. 
He does nothing but talk about his accomplishments. Let's turn to Menelaus. When they arrive, turn to page 65. Line 15. This is the opening page in book four. So these neighbors and townsmen of glorious Menelaus were at their feasting all about the great house with the high roof and taking their ease and among them stepped in an inspired singer playing his lyre while among the dancers, two acrobats led the measures of song and dance. So they don't enter the Nestor's estate, or I mean, sorry, Menelaus' estate and find people sacrificing to the gods. They see people engaged in I don't know what to call it, secular, I mean, the best word is secular, they're pleasure activities, acrobatics, dancing, things like that. When they enter the house, going over to page 66, the middle of the page, they set free the sweating horses from the harness and tethered them fast and put down fodder before them and mixed white millet into it and leaned the chariots up against the glittering inner walls and led them in inside the divine house these marveled as they admired the palace of the king whom Zeus loved, for as the shining of the sun or the moon was the shining all through this high-roofed house of glorious Menelaus. When with their eyes they had laid their pleasure in admiration, they stepped into the bathtub, smooth, polished, and bathed there. Go on over, um, page 67, about line 70. Son of Nestor, you who delight my heart, look, that, remember, because this is Pisistratus, Athena left him, Nestor's son Pisistrati accompanies him to Sparta. So the two stepped into this mansion-like home and are overawed by the size and magnificence of it. Son of Nestor, you who delight my heart, only look at the gleaming of the bronze all through these echoing mansions and the gleaming of gold and amber, silver and ivory. The court of Zeus and Olympus must be like this on the inside, such abundance of everything. Wonder takes me as I look on it. Um, uh, Menelaus says, children, there is no mortal who could rival Zeus seeing that his mansions are immortal and his possessions. There may be some man who could rival me for prosperity or there may be none. Much did I suffer and wandered much before the bringing all of this home in my ships when I came back in the eighth year. So he himself was on a voyage for eight years. Um, um, he says, go on down, but while I was wandering those parts and bringing together much property, meanwhile, another man killed my brother. Remember, Agamemnon was treacherously killed by his wife when he got home. Secretly, but surprised and by his cursed wife's treachery. So it's with no pleasure I am lord over all these possessions. You will have heard all of this from your father, whoever your fathers are, for I have suffered much and destroyed a household that was very strongly settled and held many gods within it. That is, he's undone his own household by what happened in the war and on his voyages. So he's got all of these possessions, but what he carries is this grief um, from his past. Going over at the bottom of the page, still and again lamenting all these men and sorrowing many time when I'm sitting here in our palace, I will indulge my heart in sorrow and then another time give over for surfeit of gloomy lamentation comes quickly. But for none of all these, sorry as I am, do I grieve so much as for one. It's Odysseus. It's going to bring tears to um, Telemachus' eyes. Um, 
Now, go to page 68, 120. Helen comes down. She immediately recognizes Telemachus. She says, top of page 60, 69, about line 140. Um, I look at him. Um, this man has a likeness to me, the son of great-hearted Odysseus. Telemachus, who was left behind in his house, a young child, by that man went for the sake of shameless me, the Achaeans went beneath Troy. So she carries a shame for her part because you remember it was her running off with Paris that it cost the lives of all these men. Um, down on the bottom of page 69, Menelaus praises Odysseus because he was such a dear friend of his. He says, I would have settled a city in Argos for him and made him a home, bringing him from Ithaca with all his possessions, his son, all his people. I would have emptied one city for him out of those that are settled around him. He's so wealthy. I mean, we know people like this. They're billionaires. They practically own cities. He's speaking in those terms that he could just lavish all this wealth on Odysseus, but he's not home. Um, um, bottom of page 70, about line 220, now, Helen, who was descended of Zeus, thought of the next thing. Into the wine of which they were drinking, she cast a medicine of heart's ease, free of gall, to make one forget all sorrows. Whoever had drunk it down once it had been mixed in the wine bowl, for the day that he drank it would have no tear roll down his face, not if his mother died and his father died, not if men murdered a brother or a beloved son in his presence with the bronze, and he will his own eyes saw it with his own sign. Such were the subtle medicines Zeus' daughter had in her possessions. Any thoughts about this? Helen carries this great grief. She was the cause of it. Um, her response to this is to take a drug. She says, if you take this, you won't... Um, um, sorry, we're... Um, for the day that he drank it, he would have no tear roll down his face, not if his mother died and his father died, not if men murdered a brother or a beloved son in his presence. Any responses to that? Is there any problem with that? clear? One of, the, one of the great themes of this work right now is justice. I hope that's clear. But, um, Orestes had to kill his mother and Thaistus, her lover, because they killed Agamemnon, his father. The gods involved in that. The, the, the great play on that is Aeschylus' trilogy, the Agamemnon, the Libation Bears, and the Eumenides. Um, because once Eurystes does that, he is overwhelmed by furies. I mean, he goes mad, because you can imagine the state any young man would be in if he had to take the life of his mother. Um, Telemachus isn't faced with that kind of a problem. Right now, he's trying to find his father um, and answer the injustices of the suitors. The, these men are tearing his um, home apart. If he took those drugs, what would his response be to the loss of his dad or the ravaging of his home? 
how capable would he be of answering any justice in the world? In fact, who would, that you wouldn't even feel the loss of your father or mother? What if somebody killed your mother? I mean, the natural response would be anger and injustice. You would want justice to be done. Remember, remember, what's really important, they don't live in a police state. We do. There weren't policemen around to take care of problems. They had to be answered everywhere. The blood price was a way of doing things. You know, you took, you took a life for a life. Um, because if you didn't, the sins would go on. There's no police state. So the people had to do the best they could to bring justice to whatever their circumstances. Um, Helen's answer to the problems of the past, the sorrows that it leaves her with the shame even, is to take this potion. Um, so Menelaus spends his time grieving about his lost Helen, about her part in the war. Um, go on over. Um, on page 74, after they speak, in, in more immediate answer to Telemachus's concern, he, he tells him what he knows about Odysseus. And what he, what he does is tell the story of the period when he was um, trapped on this island off the coast of Egypt, and he couldn't get off. He meets the, the daughter of the old man of the sea at the bottom of page 74. Um, go down. If one of the gods had not been sorry for her and shown mercy, Idothea, daughter of mighty Proteus, the old man of the sea, for it was her heart that I moved mostly. He asks her how he can find, how he can get off the island, what he has to do. She says, catch the old man, and he will give you the, old, the answer. And she says, the way to do it is to trap him. That he comes out of the sea, and he will take his nap among the seals. But they smell so badly, you know, the, the men have to cover themselves with the seals. What she did is spread ambrosia over them so that they could endure the stench. But here's the important part. Um, she warns him. She says, when the old man of the sea rises up to catch you, hold on to him fast because he will turn into a bear, a tree, a log. She, on page 77 at the top. They need to lay down among us. We with the cry sprang. But the old man did not forget the subtlety of his arts. First he turned into a great bearded lion, then a serpent, then a leopard, then a great boar. He turned to the fluid water, to a tree with towering branches. But we held on stiffly. Finally they make him stop. And he tells them that um, um, two men died in the return home on page 78. Aias was one of them, and he died because of his arrogance. Look at this, about line 550. Aias would have escaped his doom. He was trapped on this rock on the sea. Though Athena hated him, had he not gone widely mad and tossed out a word of defiance. For he said that despite the gods, he escaped the great gulf of the sea. Poseidon heard. That is what he's saying is, I don't need God. It's another form of blasphemy. Who do they think they are? I don't need them. He defied them and he's killed. Agamemnon is killed when he gets home. The one person, the other person, the third person who escaped but did not make it home was Odysseus. On page 79, 550. These that I know, but do you tell me the name of the third man? Who is that? That was Odysseus, son of Laertes, who makes his home in Ithaca. He says he's trapped on the island of Calypso, but he's alive. 
He says, but for you, Menelaus, O fostered of Zeus, it's not the God's will that you shall die and go to your end in horse pasturing Argos, but the immortals will convoy you to the Elysian field because he married Helen, who was the daughter of Zeus. So the old man of the sea tells Menelaus that he will have a good end. He will go to the Elysian place in the underworld, which is the place of the blessed. And Odysseus is on Calypso's island. So Telemachus learns um, um, that his father's alive. Now going over very, very quickly, I want to cover this quickly, page 82. Um, the soldiers know that Odysseus or Telemachus is returning home about line 65. A young boy in despite of Sominius has hauled down his ship and gone away choosing out the best of men. The evil will begin to go farther. May Zeus grant destruction of the life in him before he comes full measure of manhood. But come now, give me a fast ship, 20, so I can lie in wait for him. Going over line 700. Now they are minded to kill Telemachus with a sharp bronze in his way home. So the men are plotting to kill Telemachus when they get home. Going over on page... Um, 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 86, Penelope is grieving because she's heard that Telemachus took off. She says about line 815, um, um, I've lost a great man whose fame goes wide through Hellas and midmost Argos, and now again a beloved son is gone on a hollow ship, an innocent, all universal in fighting and speaking, and it is for him I grieve even more than for the other one. Now, she goes to sleep. Athena appears to her in the form of her sister, about line 825, and the sister says, take courage, let your heart not be altogether frightened. Such an escort goes along with him, and one that other men could have prayed to have standing beside them, for she has power. It's Athena. So Athena's trying to quiet Penelope's heart, saying, rest your heart, your son has help. Um, Penelope still grieves, um, 835, then in turn the dark dream image spoke to her in answer, ask for the other one. I will not tell you the whole story, whether he lives or dies. She's not going to let on to what's happened to Odysseus. It's, um, it's bad to babble emptily. So she spoke and drifted away by the bolt and doorpost and out into the blowing winds. Icarus's daughter started up from her sleep, soothed the inward heart, because this clear dream in the dim of the night had come to visit her. So the gods are doing everything they can to, to quiet these good people. The other people are bringing harm on themselves by denying the gods. Okay? Now, just quickly, what, what do we learn about Menelaus and, and Helen's marriage? What's much more evil? It what? Yeah. You all agree? What did you say? say it louder. Chuck. Well, it, just says, it appears much more equal. I mean, she allows us to be friends while we guess. Which would apply to guess on fondness for her. Just absent to the other. Yeah, but she was the daughter of Zeus, so, and I'm sure he knows that. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> right. <laughs> it does not in this world.
Yeah. Actually, I should have gone there. The scene opens with, um, not with religious prayers to the gods, but with weddings. Both his son and daughter are getting married. He's given his daughter to um, Achilles' son. His daughter's marrying another man. Um, And all the games and celebrations are going on around. A couple of things to keep in mind here. And I should have read this. I didn't. I'm just trying to be careful of time. When Telemachus and Pisistratus arrive, a man comes out and goes into Menelaus and says to him, strangers are coming. Um, and he's on guard. And Menelaus says to him, don't be foolish, let them in. Why is that in this scene? What's the significance of that? This is apparently insignificant. What happened to Menelaus ages ago? Oh, yes, Paris. Paris came and took Helen. There's a, this is, it's an interesting, how, by the way, I think both marriages are good marriages. There's not a question about that. I just don't want to um, overstate this. Both marriages are good marriages. But I think we're meant to be aware of them and keep them in mind when we get to the end and set them next to Odysseus. In Nestor's relationship, there was no place for the woman, practically at all. She had no voice. It was all Nestor going on about war things. In Menelaus and Helen's home, they can't get out of the past either. He can't stop grieving, and she takes drugs. So whatever, whatever positive things we can say, and I think, I think it's supposed to be a good marriage, we're aware that they themselves cannot let go of the past. And it's keeping them, from, in some sense, from entering the present. Um, Menelaus will not let go of his grief. She feels her shame. Her answer to it is to take drugs. So, and there's a guardedness, um, I think, because of what happened with Paris. So none of this is, you know, Homer's not out there saying, look at this, look at this, look at this. You know, what he's doing is just presenting these marriages, and they, he's not accusing, not judging. He's letting them speak for themselves. But if we look at them, there are difficulties. And what they have in common is they cannot escape the past, the wounds of the past, or will not. There's nothing to help them. So here in the beginning, in the Telemachi, we've got a young boy on the verge of manhood, beginning to struggle with the evils of his life, to try to make some sense of his world, to bring some order to it, because his life is full of disorder. He goes in search of his father, and and he encounters these two families, these two marriages, and what we learn is that in both cases, there's something keeping the two apart. Something's not, or at least we'll see that if we don't see it now when we see what happens with Odysseus. Okay, because both of them um, are stuck in the past. Now here's my question for what we're about to start. We're gonna start Odysseus's wanderings when we pick up next week. What is it that Odysseus learns at sea that makes it possible for him to bring something to his marriage that Nestor and Menelaus don't have? There's no way to answer that without going through the sea voyages. All of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. We're gonna see at the end that he has to, in fact, one of the things that he has to do, he has to go to the land of the dead. If he doesn't go there, he won't get home.
So we learn that he will never be able to bring to his home what he can unless he does these things. Now stop and think about our marriages in our life, in a, you know, having been raised in our world, largely scientific, lar- here in America, largely Protestant. And um, the, our struggles in marriages, all of us have them. All of us have them. We all struggle. We all have fights. We all carry wounds. What are we learning about marriage from this poet who lived 2,000 years before Christ, who's showing us something about our nature? We learned something about our human nature in the Iliad. Our focus was this extraordinary capacity for honor that humans have because of some transcendent element, some divine element in their souls. Most of the men are destroying it in the Iliad. Achilles is the one who who comes out of this, helping us to see that he he was capable of what he did at the end at great cost. He had to accept his death um, and he had to admit his faults. And once he did that, the whole end changes. The, the uh, what do you call it, the ransoming, the quarrels. Remember, he put all that to rest. The way he handled things. To put it differently, nobody could have done that at the beginning of the Iliad. Nobody. Iliad and Achilles is capable of doing that because the change, the recognition scene, the change that he undergoes that brings him to that end. The cost of it, death. Now we're dealing with a hero who's trying to get home to his family. And we've been introduced to two families. They're good families. Um, just keep that in mind. Um, when we deal with the Iliad, what is or the, the ending? What will Odysseus bring home when he returns home that Nestor and Menelaus don't have? Okay? That's the great question. I'm gonna, what is it? What can we learn about ourselves from this? And even maybe more importantly, in what ways does it anticipate Christ? What does it show us about Christ and what he did for us? Let me leave it at that, okay? We'll pick up next week.